This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Rajpokar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking with Dr. Aday Adamson, who's a dermatologist and assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. His primary clinical focus is in melanoma, which is a type of skin cancer. Dr. Adamson also does a lot of work examining how effectively our healthcare system delivers care to patients with skin cancer and what kinds of disparities exist in how that care is delivered, especially when machine learning comes into the picture. So Pranav, machine learning systems have actually been shown to be quite successful in the context of dermatology, right? Yeah. In research, ML models have been shown to be capable of distinguishing between images of benign and malignant skin lesions with an accuracy similar to those of board-certified dermatologists. So in other words, if you show one of these models a picture of a mole, the model can tell you whether or not that mole is cancerous, basically as well as a dermatologist could. Right. And you can imagine how helpful this kind of technology could be both for dermatologists and for patients. But what I hope that you and I and our listeners have developed over the course of making and listening to this show is a sort of spidey sense when we hear about ML systems like this. One of the first questions that we need to ask ourselves is, what is the potential for bias here? We've seen examples of racial bias in ML algorithms and specifically computer vision all over the news. So for example, Google Photos tagged images of black people as gorillas. Nikon had software on one of their cameras that misread images of Asian people as blinking. Several commercial facial analysis programs, including by IBM and Microsoft, have been shown to be less accurate on dark skin. Yeah, unfortunately, AI systems can reflect our worst societal biases, and we've seen this when applying ML to dermatology. Some of our listeners may have heard of the phrase garbage in, garbage out in the context of machine learning systems. In other words, a model can only ever be as good as the data it was trained on. And unfortunately, most machine learning systems for dermatology are learning on data sets with tons of images of skin disorders on lighter skin and not necessarily enough images of skin disorders on darker skins. One of the largest open source and commonly used archives of pigmented lesions is the Melanoma Project from the International Skin Imaging Collaboration, otherwise known as ISIC. And much of the patient data is collected from light skin populations in the United States, Europe, and Australia. And it's worth noting that many skin disorders just look different and, and manifest differently on different complexions. So it doesn't matter how good your model is, if you're not showing it enough examples of darker skin tones, then it's probably going to underperform on darker skin tones. Right. And think about all the ways that that can lead to a lot of misdiagnoses. The American Cancer Society published a report that found that there was a survival gap for cancer with black patients having lower rates of survival. The report suggests that this survival gap is due less to biological differences than it's due to socioeconomic disparities that result in unequal access to income, housing, high-quality healthcare. 
Now, we know that there are disproportionately high melanoma mortality rates in patients of color, and research suggests that this may be driven by a lack of representation and data in the broader field of dermatology itself. In other words, images of skin disorders on darker skin are underrepresented in lectures, textbooks, case studies, clinical training, right? Most dermatologists are trained to recognize skin disorders on lighter skin, which is awful, especially considering that even though skin cancer is less common in people with darker skin, it's been shown to be more deadly in Black and Hispanic patients and is often diagnosed much later. Exactly. There are already existing racial disparities in dermatology, and if we're not careful, ML systems could easily exacerbate those disparities. I'm very much looking forward to chatting with our guest, Dr. Adamson, today to learn more about the field and what we can do to ensure equitable advancements in ML for dermatology. Dr. Adamson, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Can you maybe tell us a brief history of Dr. Adamson? How did you get into the space? How did you get here? All right. Well, I'll tell you about my educational background first. You know, I'm a proud graduate of Morehouse College, which is a uh, historically black college in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and from there, I went to Harvard for medical school. And I was in this program called Health Sciences and Technology. Basically, it's a partnership with MIT. So I took a bunch of classes with a lot of PhD scientists. I kind of jokingly refer to myself as a covering basic scientist. So early on, I did a lot of work in the lab. But as I progressed through medical school, I became more interested in public policy and ended up getting a master's in public policy, also at Harvard. And then from there, I went to do my dermatology residency in Texas at UT Southwestern. And then I spent a three-year stint on faculty at UNC, Chapel Hill, before I came here in, in 2018. So I guess that's my actual physical journey to where I am uh, today. I'd love to try to get a real picture of what AI looks like in the doctor's office when it comes to dermatology. Is it being used today or is it something that we imagine will be used five years from now? It is not being routinely used today in the fashion that most people think, right? Which is an image recognition, say, for diagnostic purposes, to my knowledge, at least, there are no approved widely used apps, right, or technology or software that clinicians kind of use at point of care to help drive decision making. Now, I know there's a number that are being tested and, you know, trying to get validated in clinical settings. But as of now, from a diagnostic perspective, AI or machine learning, how we think about it, it is not yet being used in dermatology. But I think that in the future, it's possible, possibly the near future, that that may change. Hmm. So right now, the way it's being used is in research and helping doctors learn more about what's happening in the space using large data sets that are available, but it's only specifically in the research setting. Is that right? That is a fair assessment of where things are now, but it's a quickly moving field. Most of the research that has been done you know, so far hasn't quite gotten to the point of showing that it improves clinical outcomes, which I think is going to be an important hurdle for AI to jump over, um, at least in dermatology, for clinicians to want to use it. That's fascinating. Could you explain more about that? What does that mean that it's not actually helping clinical outcomes? 
Well, so there are no studies that have shown like if I, you know, a dermatologist have say, let's just pick skin cancer because that's probably the most easily understandable problem. Say I have an AI powered app on my phone where I could bring into the clinic exam room. And when I'm looking at a patient and trying to decide whether I want to biopsy a mole or not, because it's concerning for skin cancer or not, I could use that app, just kind of wave it over the mole and it give me some kind of, I don't know, risk score or prediction of to biopsy or not to biopsy, or this is the likelihood it's cancer to influence how I then decide to engage in handling the lesion that's in front of me. That hasn't quite, you know, happened yet. I want to ask about how much of this setup that you described is a uh, toy setting versus what really happens if you weren't using an app. So we have these apps that can look at a mole, or at least we have algorithms that can look at a picture of a mole and determine the likelihood that it's a malignant cancer versus just a benign lesion. How representative is it in terms of what the doctor does or in terms of what you do when you're looking at a patient? So all of the papers that I've gotten a lot of press for examining kind of the ability of machine learning to recognize moles and basically head-to-head comparisons to dermatologists. All of them, as you said, have been done um, in situations where they're comparing just images, single static images where the provider has no information, right? They don't know what the previous risks are of the patient, you know, of having had cancer before, which increases, you know, your pre-pressed probability that this might be something that's malignant. Also, when you think about moles, I don't know if you've heard of the A, B, C, D, E criteria. No. So it involves kind of analysis of a mold based on, you know, its size, like its borders, its color variation, its diameter, and then E for, you know, evolution. And so what's key there is evolution, right? That's probably the most important, I would say, thing, distinguishing something from being benign or malignant. Is it changing? Is it growing? Is it bleeding? Is it symptomatic or not? And sorry, I forgot the A, which was asymmetry. Is the mole asymmetric? So that's the A, B, C, D, E criteria. And so if you're asking a dermatologist, right, whether to biopsy a mole or not, in the clinic, they're going to ask, like, has this changed at all? Has it grown? That information really isn't given in those head-to-head competitions, right? That's interesting. And so in a lot of these studies, the dermatologist is in effect kind of, you know, handicapped, right? And making that choice, right? Because they don't have all of the information. And then the the last thing I was going to say is looking at images under dermoscopy, which is basically magnified moles. So moles under a magnification, the way in which these AI or machine learning technology has been designed is very different than in a room where the lighting might be different, orientation patient might be different all of these things. So while machine learning is great in this basically artificial environment, we don't yet have enough data to see how its performance is in the wild. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding. The idea is that there are a bunch of papers that have come out that say, oh, there are these models that are just as good at or or better than doctors at diagnosing certain types of skin cancers, let's say. But it's sort of an artificial setting because all you're doing is basically comparing these models that are looking at static images. They're not sort of seeing these images over time and how they change over time. 
And these doctors or these dermatologists that they're being compared to are also evaluating these images statically without any of the context of an exam room. And what has yet to have been shown is that if you actually give these doctors some of these models, whether or not it would actually improve their outcomes or not, or whether it would simply, I don't know, maybe even make them worse. Is that a fair understanding? Yeah, that's exactly how, how I would sum it up. And there was also one other aspect of deciding what mole to biopsy or not. And that's looking at something called the ugly duckling kind of sign, meaning you biopsy the mole on the body that looks a lot different than the other ones, one that sticks out. Okay. So certain moles on people in context of their constellation of moles would be concerning on one person, but not as much on another person, right? If you're someone that basically produces a lot of abnormal looking moles or atypical nevi, as they're called, an atypical nevus on someone that, you know, just has a lot of them is a lot different than if you have very few moles and all of a sudden an atypical nevus kind of pops up on your skin. And age is also important too. When you're younger, you tend to produce more moles and around the late 30s, early 40s, you don't tend to produce new moles after that. And, you know, moles that come about after that, I'm talking about like, you know, dark moles that come out about after that start to become more concerning. And I'm only bringing this up because what population you decide to use this algorithm is very important. Got it. Let's get into that. So you've talked about how these algorithms are being developed for a setting that may not be truly reflective because a dermatologist is looking at, as you mentioned, the evolution of the lesion, looking at the skin cancer history, they're looking at other risk factors, the other moles on the body. I'm curious about another aspect of this decision-making, which is the individual skin type. I want to get into the effect of that on the AI algorithms itself or the effect of the AI algorithms on individual skin types. But I'd love to understand from a clinical perspective, how does the individual skin type come into account into your decision-making? Could you humor me in me telling you a little story? Because this is how I got into AI. Please do. Okay. I was a lowly young attending at UNC Chapel Hill when I published a paper about delays in surgical care for people of color and people that uh, were underinsured. It got a little press, got into women's magazine and some other outlets. And I received a call, a frantic call to my clinic, all right, saying, I need to talk to Dr. Adamson. Uh, I have a family member that has cancer and I need to talk to you. Now, this was really strange to me. Random people don't usually call my clinic and particularly not those interested in skin cancer. Because at that point in time, I wasn't someone who was a, quote, melanoma expert. I decided to take the call and on the phone, I meet somebody by the name of Avery Smith. And Avery Smith is black and his wife passed from melanoma, who she is also black. That was under-recognized and caught too late. Now, Avery's also, he's also like a software engineer, and he kept telling me about how these algorithms are biased, he's biased, like, we, you know, uh, Dr. Adamson, you're a black dermatologist, where can I find some images so we can make these skin cancer samples more representative? And uh, I, I was like, I don't have access to that data, but what I can do is I can lend you my voice, okay? Uh, let's write a, a manuscript about this. We then wrote a viewpoint in JAMA Dermatology about this, and it got a lot more attention. And, you know, quite frankly, got the attention of folks in dermatology as well in the, the machine learning space. The issue is that the current algorithms that have been made have basically omitted cancers that 
can uh, happen on darker skin types, okay? And that's a problem because if you want to develop an algorithm that is fair and as unbiased as possible, if you don't include in your training uh, data representative samples, you're not going to be able to have an algorithm that works you know, across a large range of skin types. And just to confirm, are there different types of cancers across people with different types of skin tones? Or is it that you want a breadth of different types of skin tones for a given cancer that you're trying to predict? It's the second one. Melanomas may look a little bit different in folks with skin of color. They're on different parts of the body, occur more likely on the palms and soles. And actually, in that Esteva et al. paper out of Stanford, I believe they excluded all acral lesions, so ones that happen on the palms and soles, if I'm not mistaken. And can we talk for a second about these data sets? Who's creating them? Are they coming out of institutions? So a lot of them are coming out of basically multi-institutional partnerships that then report to, say, a larger collaboratives. So ISIC, they have a huge repository of these dermoscopic images hmm. that are often the basis of many of the AI studies that you've seen in the literature. And they make that publicly available to any researchers that would want to build on top of it. They make public at least a uh, portion of that data available. They admit themselves that there is not much diversity of skin types uh, within their database. But I would be remiss if I did not say that they now have seen this as, a, as an issue and they're trying to actively improve this issue. This may be a touchy question, but I'm curious what you think the reason is for this. Why did that become the case that there's such a strong racial disparity in the types of skin tones that are represented in these data sets? That's not a touchy question at all. I mean, that's a very legitimate question. I think it's uh, twofold. The most important reason is epidemiology. So the risk of developing, say, melanoma or skin cancer is uh, related to how light or how dark you are. The darker you are, the less of a risk you have of developing, say, melanoma or basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma over the skin, which are the major subtypes of skin cancer. So it should not be surprising that there are lower numbers in any data set because it's just, you know, less common. Hmm. Okay. But that doesn't mean that there should be, you know, zero or close to zero, right? When you, especially when you're talking hundreds of thousands of, of images. Right. The second is probably the most uncomfortable is I think that, you know, it was just easier not to deal with it. You know, it's also possible that the clinics where folks are getting these dermoscopic images, just the patient populations aren't as diverse. Therefore, they don't get populated. What I do know is the populations or the places that put images into ISIC are like Europe, Australia, US. You know, we're not talking countries that have large populations of people with darker skin types. Right. It's clear that there are racial disparities in these data sets that are used to train the models. But I'm kind of curious what the racial disparities are in even just the textbooks that dermatologists in, say, the U.S. use. I mean, forget AI for a second. Do you think the average dermatologist in the U.S. would be as good at diagnosing skin diseases on darker skin tones than they would on lighter skin tones? So there's been quite a bit of research in that space, particularly over the last year. 
Um, and, you know, textbook after textbook after textbook and dermatology and in, in general medicine as well uh, shows that there is underrepresentation of darker skin types as they relate to many common, you know, diseases. Now to the question of whether this impacts patient care, a lot of that is anecdotal, right? It's, you know, hearing stories of how certain patients get, you know, misdiagnosed or undertreated because the clinician, you know, doesn't readily recognize the disorder or how bad it is in skin of color. So I would say that likely that's the case. And if you poll dermatologists, many dermatologists that are white uh, do feel like they could improve on their diagnostic capabilities um, in skin of color. Wow, interesting. Dr. Adamson, you've written about whether healthcare disparities are more about race or racism. Could you clear up the reason for this disparity, the healthcare disparities that we see in the U.S. system and beyond, why the reason for that might be racism as opposed to this idea that it's driven by inherent biological differences between people of different races? So what I usually like to say is that if you think genetics are the reason why Black people have increased rates, say, death from cancer, worse asthma, more hypertension, more heart disease, more kidney disease, like on and on and on and on and on. To think that Black people are so genetically, biologically cursed that biology could explain all of those disparities, I think is absurd. It can't be explained by all of that. What then can explain it? Well, it's the environment. It's your interaction with your environment, which is driven by maybe where you live, what kind of food that you have access to, healthcare access that you have. You know, they always say, you know, your zip code is more predictive of outcomes than your genetic code. And structural racism is involved in deciding where you live. And you've talked about that there is precedent for a medication to be your mark for a specific racial group. Uh, coming back to AI, is there a future in which we should be worried or excited about AI being your mark specifically for a racial group? I think that's scary. I'm going to come back to dermatology here, right? If I knew that there was an app, right, that is just designed for Black people, uh, you know, or, you know, say people that are South Asian or, you know, people that, you know, are East Asian. And if you want to be diagnostically accurate, then you have to use this separate app from another. I would find that quite troubling. Why not just have it all under one umbrella? But what some of your audience may not know is that what's different about dermatology is that we actually do have separate textbooks that are skin of color textbooks. Wow. I did not know that. Now, that's not ideal, right? But yeah, there's uh, many of them because representation hasn't been where it should be in some of our mainstream textbooks. So that's the result of mainstream textbooks not being inclusive or diverse in their representation, not a result of some type of medical decision that was made that it made sense to keep those textbooks separate. That's what it appears to me. You don't have a textbook of, at least I don't think there's a textbook of the black heart or, you know, the black kidney or something like that. I mean, it's not the case. And so going back to the question of should there be a separate app or not, 
I mean, there's precedent in books, but I don't think that that's uh, ideal uh, at all. Is there any effort being made right now to remedy that, to create one textbook or one mainstream or a few mainstream textbooks that are actually, that actually represent, yeah, the population of the U.S.? Yeah. So that's happening, or at least people who have the ability to change that are listening and saying that they can do better and that they will try to do better. You know, we'll see. It is fascinating because we talk so much about disparities, racial disparities and biases in data sets for ML models, but I didn't even consider or think about sort of the old school or real world disparities that exist in sort of the data sets that train dermatologist minds before they become doctors. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I guess it's one thing about machine learning, at least like supervised machine learning, right? It's kind of like residency. You see a rash a thousand times and then you can recognize psoriasis, you know? I mean, so you see enough weird moles and, hey, I know how to, you know, recognize melanoma. I mean, it has some parallels. And if you train, say, somewhere where, or you use a textbook that doesn't have the rash that or how it looks in another skin type, you may not recognize it. I'm curious to hear from you whether you see AI playing a role in designing now successful interventions to do something about these racial disparities that exist. I certainly think that it can. You know, if you're able to design, say, an AI system that has representative inputs and you put it in the hand of, say, a, a dermatologist that may be a little shaky on, you know, certain diagnoses or better yet, primary care physician, right, to help them to diagnose something, I think that it could actually reduce some healthcare disparities. But fundamentally, is that training data representative? A point I want to go back to that you mentioned earlier was that light-skinned people often have more prevalence of melanoma than darker-skinned people. Now, when we're evaluating these AI algorithms on a population, when do we know or how do we know that they are fair on uh, light-skinned people and darker-skinned people when there is this difference in terms of one, the prevalence of these populations, and the second, in the outcomes of this population. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think that, uh, and, and this is, as I stated earlier, problems or a hurdle AI hasn't quite jumped over, at least in the dermatology space, of showing that there's an improvement in outcomes, right? You know, from my vantage point as a physician, what I want to know is when I use that, are my patients going to do better or not? And so the answer to your question is we need to run some kind of trial to show that doctors that use or patients of certain skin types that have doctors that use this technology do better than those that do not on some kind of clinical outcome of importance, whether that's mortality, which can be hard, or that's morbidity, stage of disease. You know, if you want some other kind of patient reported outcome or patient satisfaction, but just something that as a clinician, I know this app has changed. This is maybe a little futuristic because this isn't the case right now, but I'm curious in a world in which you had models available to you to help you diagnose patients as you saw them, how important would it be to you that those models be explainable in some way? And what I mean by that is that you'd be able to see why the machine made the decision that it did 
or in your mind, do you even want that? Is there a part of you that's like, listen, I, I know my patients better than a machine does. I don't need the help of a model. I'm okay as is. I've tried to think through this and I'm not sure yet. You know, I guess that's the most honest answer because in one breath, I like the idea that I can get an answer, right? And how you arrive at, you know, the answer. I mean, I like, I don't know the intricacies of a MRI machine, but I know it makes the image and boom, I look at it, you know, but then if what the algorithm tells me from my clinical judgment, I disagree on, then perhaps I would be more inclined to want to know, Hey, why is it disagreeing? So I could learn too, right? Maybe there's something that I'm not seeing. Hmm. And this is also sort of why I think the future is the union of the two. And so now that I'm, you know, talking this out a bit with you, I feel like a certain level of explainability would be useful, but I'm not steeped enough in machine learning to know what that actually would look like. Do you ever get a sense of pushback from fellow dermatologists about using machine learning models in the doctor's office? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, of course. There have been surveys that have been done that have shown that some dermatologists are, you know, afraid that their job's going to, you know, go away or be altered. I would say there's also a strong contingent that think that AI is going to be better. And what I like to tell people too is I actually think AI is going to be more important in dermatology, at least not in the diagnostic space, but in helping us write notes, counsel patients, do some of the things and note-taking in particular, not counseling patients. That is, is part is this tedious part of being a doctor that doesn't allow us to sit and talk to patients face-to-face without having our computers in, you know, in front of them and all this kind of stuff. And I actually think it might even like bring some joy back to being a dermatologist. There's joy still, you know, but I mean more joy. Okay. And I actually think there's a lot of problems in the diagnostic space, which I don't know if you want to get into. I've written about two and with the cancer diagnosis and how that's problematic. And I think there's way more challenges in that space, even though that's where every, all the attention is than there is on these other aspects. Yeah, would love to chat more about that. One of the promises of machine learning in the diagnostic space has been that we'll be able to diagnose faster than experts. And let's take the example of reading uh, mammography images. So we have these AI algorithms that can read these mammography images. And you know now it's more accessible to larger populations, less wait times, and we'll be able to find more cancers than we did previously. Now, this this idea in society that finding more cancers is always better, but you've argued that this may not be true. Could you dive a little into what is the problem with all these ML systems finding more cancers? So the goal of screening is not finding more cancers. The goal of screening should be to save lives, right? That's why people go through it, right? Um, A byproduct of that is finding, you know, more cancers. And there was a paper in Nature that came out I mean, like December or January um, this past year that I read it. And me and a, my mentor slash colleague, Dr. Gil Welsh, wrote a uh, op-ed in the Los Angeles Times, basically cautioning the exuberance of using machine learning for mammography. So the diagnosis of cancer, okay, the gold standard diagnosis of cancer is uncertain. 
Okay. There are certain things that you find, say on mammography or on, you know, biopsy of the skin that meet the pathologic definition of cancer, right? So a pathologist may call it cancer under the microscope, but if you actually never went looking for that lesion and left it there, it might have just gone so slowly. It wouldn't have affected the person could have gone away or just might not have actually killed the person. Um, and if you go around finding these quote, cancers, um, you could actually do a lot of harm. And this is something called overdiagnosis. And uh, machine learning could put that on steroids. And are there any instances that come to mind in terms of overdiagnosis have already been a problem without the machine learning context? Yeah, it's already a problem in screening now. Overdiagnosis has been an issue in uh, mammography. Estimates something like 30% of breast cancers are overdiagnosed. There's a study out of Australia saying that up to 50% of melanomas are overdiagnosed. And what I can tell you is that the more you go looking for cancer, the more you'll find, the smaller and smaller abnormalities you'll find that may actually have no clinical benefit. And what I fear, right, in that diagnostic space is that this problem could be an, like an exponential an issue. What's a solution that you see or a way of moving forward for the community? Because it seems to me like an alternative pathway would be to not apply machine learning. And there would be a lot of drawbacks to that as well in terms of increasing accessibility to these technologies and to expert opinions for a lot of people. So how can we provide this technology, but at the same time also cut down on the possibility of overdiagnosis? So I think that machine learning could actually be used to improve this problem. Let's take cancer like melanoma as an example, okay? If you give the same slide to 10 pathologists and ask them to read it, you may get half that says it's cancer and half that say it's not cancer or 30% that say it's cancer and 70% say it's not cancer. But you also have lesions that all of them agree that are cancer and all of them disagree uh, that this is not cancer. And so what machine learning could actually do is it could help sort these lesions into, I think, three buckets. Lesions that everybody agrees is cancer, lesions that nobody believes is cancer, and then this gray area, right? So you can imagine a system where the diagnosis of the cancer, right? And I'm talking solid tumors in particular, is vetted by like a panel of say 10 or 15 dermatopathologists or pathologists. And they basically decide cancer, no cancer. And then you basically train your algorithm to know how to group those cancer, not cancer, uncertain, right? And that probably will make the job of the pathologist more challenging, right? Because it is those lesions in the middle that perhaps expert opinion should be involved in assessing. Or maybe those are lesions that we can treat differently because everyone doesn't think it's cancer. So maybe we can be less aggressive. We can have expectant management. We can uh, maybe just monitor, et cetera. And I really think artificial intelligence and machine learning really could do a lot of good in keeping us honest uh, in that way and trying to mitigate the problem of overdiagnosis. 
Right. And one of the advantages of this idea could also be, as you mentioned, just different ways of treating patients who would be the easy cases on either side of the spectrum and really thinking about those in the middle differently there. So I think that's fascinating and also ties in with your previous point of thinking about outcomes and directly maybe mapping on these decisions to their outcomes rather than to these intermediate diagnoses of cancer or no cancer, when what we really care about is, is it going to affect this person negatively in the next five years or in the next 10 years? Or is there going to be another thing that we should be worried about more? Obviously, COVID has changed the way that we have doctor's visits over the course of the last six months. And I'm curious if you see any potential for how that would change dermatology long-term and potentially sort of add a new avenue for these ML models to, to be used and sort of see a world in which I take a picture of my rash with my iPhone, I send it to my dermatologist, maybe there's a diagnosis that's made then that's sent along to the dermatologist. I'm just sort of curious what your visions for a post-COVID world would look like in dermatology. I'm going to try to make a, a prediction. I'll probably be wrong. But if everything aligned, I mean, what you, what you described could be a, a world that happens. If you think of a point of care kind of application of machine learning where a patient takes the photo, whether it's of a rash or a mole and perhaps a risk score or a preliminary diagnosis or a set of diagnoses are forwarded on to the dermatologist. And if we're, if we're talking about virtual visits, Maybe that'll help actually make the visit go a lot more smoothly, right? And it also can help it triaging patients. Like who needs to be seen in the next week? Who can wait a month? And there are not a lot of dermatologists out there. There's about 10,000 or so. There's a shortage of us. And so some kind of technology that could help triage, I think certainly would be useful. I didn't realize that there was a shortage of dermatologists. Is that across the world, just in the U.S.? So I can only speak to the U.S. And like many physicians, particularly specialists, were concentrated in urban areas and urban areas that have money. So say rural places or places with less median income have less dermatologists and wait times for dermatologists are notoriously long, like three months, five months in some cases. And so if you have a bleeding mole or some kind of debilitating rash, it would be good to know how to triage those patients because now the way it's done, the patient calls and the patient's not sure. I have a rash and that's really it. And they're like, all right, we'll see you in six weeks. Yeah. Um, that's not ideal. Yeah. Well, Dr. Adamson, I know we're out of time, but I guess maybe the very last question that I'll ask is if there is one thing that you would like to see the dermatological community adopt over the course of the next year, two years, three years, what would that be? What would, what would, is the highest priority change that you would want to see made? For AI and machine learning? Whatever you think. It can be in that space. It could be in terms of racial disparities. Whatever is most pressing to you. It's in both. I would like the field to embrace this idea that for AI, we need to make sure that we, we use data sets that are representative of the patients that we take care of because we're at risk of leaving people of color behind. And I think we're at a juncture where we really can make a difference. And I hope that this is a message that people take seriously moving forward. Thank you. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's all folks. A big thank you to Dr. Ade Adamson for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. 
We're your hosts, Pranav and Adriel. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.